Welcome to the Power Hour. I'm Adrienne Herbert, wellness coach, international speaker and author. Each week I speak to a variety of guests from business founders to Olympic athletes, leading coaches, change makers and innovators to find out their daily habits, their rules to live by and what motivates them to get up out of bed each day. Personally, I am on a mission to encourage, motivate and inspire. So I hope that the Power Hour will help you to achieve your personal and professional goals. Welcome back to the Power Hour podcast. Today, I am joined by Dale Pinnock. Dale is a nutritionist who has dedicated 26 years of his life to studying the science and application of nutrition. He is a Sunday Times bestselling author and has published an impressive 18 books. Dale has so much knowledge and he is on a mission to bring accessible and understandable info about nutrition to all of us so that we can all take control of our own health. Welcome to the podcast, Dale, how are you doing? I'm very well, how are you? I'm really well, thank you. And I mean, I probably say this every week, like, oh, I can't wait for this conversation. But honestly, as somebody who kind of geeks out quite a lot on different things when it comes to nutrition, I'm really excited to talk to you. Oh, fantastic. Oh, you know what? I'm like that too. I mean, you kind of, it's one of those subjects where you can just go down the rabbit hole and just get more and more excited and more and more questions. The more answers you get, the more questions seem to pop up and you just get further and further into it. Absolutely. And of course, before, I suppose a caveat for this whole conversation is that today, you know, you are a nutritionist. We're going to be Mm -hmm. talking about the science. We're going to probably be going quite granular on some of these things. And it kind of goes without saying that there's so much to it when it comes to food, when it comes to what we eat, how we eat, the emotional side of it, the social side of it, you know, economic factors, all of that. But for the purpose of today, I really want to focus on yeah, the science and the information and the detail, because Mm. it is overwhelming and confusing for people. Let's be honest, you know, there's so much information and it changes all the time, it seems, about what we should eat, when we should eat, how much we should eat, foods that boost gut health, foods that boost Mm. brain health, foods that, you know, debating about carbs, fats, protein, plant-based, paleo, (laughs) fasting, like, come on, it just goes on and on and on. And so it's no wonder people feel a little bit like, oh my gosh, where do we start? Yeah, it's bizarre how this all happened. I mean, like I say, um, I've actually, it, it's this year, it's 30 years that I've actually been in the nutrition industry, which I need to update my bio. It's crazy when I think about that. I always knew that it was going to get big. I always knew that like once people cottoned on to the the realisation that the way that you eat has a huge influence on a multitude of different health outcomes, that it was going to get big. What I never saw coming, though, was how nutrition was going to get intertwined with popular culture i mean i never thought in a million years kale would be aspirational but it has it's become like entwined with popular culture and with that comes fad and fashion with that comes misinformation with that comes little half truths that get repeated over and over again and that's what leads to the confusion when you actually take a step back from that and look at the evidence base look at the totality of the evidence then it is possible to actually get some clarity into in terms of of what's the better approaches to to take without getting kind of caught up in all that minutiae yeah well we are very good at doing that you know someone who follows you online you know when i watch your videos there you're very clear at doing that and it's not so much myth busting but it's actually yeah providing the facts and Mm. so for today's conversation i've kind of picked out three topics that i wanted to 
dive in on because otherwise we could talk about everything. So <laughs> the topics that I've chosen are protein, sugar, and gut health. And I think that's just because in the wellness world, in the fitness world, I feel like there's a lot of yeah, conversation, debate, misinformation, etc. So hopefully we can, yeah, just find out some of the truth, some of the myths, and really mm. just focus on what's important. So first up, let's start with protein. Now, yes. as I mentioned, I've worked in the health and wellness industry for 10 years, and it seems like our focus on protein has just increased every single year. I feel like, to be honest, the fitness industry is pretty obsessed with protein, <laughs> and that's kind of gone more into mainstream. You know, you can see protein now written on Mars bars. There's a protein Mars bar. Did you know that? <laughs> I've seen that, yeah. I mean, I think it's a bit of a push, but yeah. Yeah, and I've there's... There's recipes for protein pancakes, protein banana, all these things. So I've also heard a lot of conflicting advice about, you know, and some of these industry experts are people that I know and respect. So I'm kind of torn between, okay, is this right? So I guess for someone who maybe exercises three to four times a week, typically they're pretty active and they enjoy exercise, whatever that is. Maybe that's going to the gym or running or, or, Mm. or swimming, whatever it is. How much does... I guess, firstly, protein impacts our performance, our recovery and our longevity. It's hugely important for, for recovery from a workout, obviously, because especially if you're doing sort of quite heavy resistance work because you're you're actually breaking down that muscle tissue and you require a huge amount of protein to actually help it to repair and to build. I mean, if, you, if you're trying to build muscle, then you need to be in that positive nitrogen balance. In terms of how much we actually need, that's a really sliding scale. If someone is very, very active, the old school kind of recommendation is like one gram of protein for every pound of body weight. I mean, that's the kind of old school bodybuilding type mm-hmm. approach. But really, I don't think many of us, unless you're an elite athlete, need to worry that much. What I will say to people is just try and get some good quality protein in each meal. I mean, that has a lot of benefits way beyond just the exercise recovery. I mean, you can look, you can look at protein in two ways. I mean, the first way of looking at it is if you're worried about protein deficiency, it is virtually impossible unless you do something really bizarre like live on one bowl of rice a day mm-hmm. to get into that state of protein energy malnutrition which manifests itself as a condition called kwashiorkor which you sometimes see in populations where there is a high level of starvation you'll see <clears throat> like the kids with the, the bloated bellies mm. you often see those, those kind of pictures on on some of these charity campaigns that kwashiorkor that is actual true protein energy malnutrition in the western world that ain't gonna happen a lot of people worry about uh protein when they're eating plant-based diets for example our protein is made out of many different amino acids it's, our protein is like a brick wall okay and the individual bricks are the amino acids different proteins use different amino acids in different sequences whenever we eat any protein we break it down into the individual amino acids those amino acids go to the liver and sit in the amino acid pool and then when we need a specific protein to be synthesized or created our liver does that it just knits together the sequence of amino acids that are unique to that protein and off it goes as long as you're eating a varied diet you'll be getting the full cross-section of the amino acids so you that's the first thing to think about with protein you will never be deficient in it 
Okay. That's, it, to be honest, that's what I was kind of getting at there because as we know, there's a lot of, you know, protein shakes, protein bars, like add these yes. things to your diet. And sometimes I've heard people similar to what you're saying say, well, actually, if you eat, you know, if you look at your diet throughout the week, if you're eating eggs, if you're eating nuts, mm. if you're eating chicken, you're not mm. going to be protein deficient. Don't worry no. about it. And then there's other people saying, no, 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 after every single run or after every single workout, you must within 45 minute window eat a high protein snack or a high protein drink to replenish your, and it's kind of this, very polarizing yeah. thing of saying well actually you do you need to do this or, or why why are people saying within this window straight after training you've got to have protein what's that about well it is that recovery window i mean that's a very very different sort of argument to general day-to-day -day health when when you're very active and if you're trying to achieve specific athletic goals then mm. it's a completely different rule book right. certainly certainly protein within that recovery window is going to help you to recover more effectively from that workout but on a day-to-day -day level i i always encourage people because one of my big areas of interest is metabolic health if, if you look around certainly before like before covid the the main things that were burdening the healthcare system mm. were type 2 diabetes were obesity and cardiovascular disease those mm. three very closely linked issues are all related to metabolic health so in general in this country we are in a poor state of metabolic health mm. so one of the things that i always encourage people to do is that every single meal make sure you've got a good quality protein on your plate and this has got nothing to do with exercise recovery or anything like that this is all about supporting good metabolic health and the reason behind that is if you look at your plate at each meal if you imagine uh breakfast lunch dinner you've got a really good quality protein like eggs or fish or if you're plant-based it could be tofu or tempeh or something like that you've also got a really good quality slow burning high fiber carbohydrate so think brown rice or sweet potato or quinoa or something like that and then also you've got an abundance of non-starchy vegetables when you compose meals like that that has a huge impact upon multiple markers of metabolic health it slows the rising of blood sugar down it keeps you feeling fuller for longer it actually increases the production of satiety hormones it ticks lots of boxes so i always say to people every meal just make sure there's a good quality protein there and that's as much as you need to worry about yeah, and I suppose, as you said, it's very important to recognise that it's not one size fits all. And so for some people, yeah. if they are obese, if they're inactive, you know, of course, the suggestion for somebody like that to change their maybe diet habits or their, their daily routines is going to be very different to probably someone like myself or some of the listeners of the show who are endurance athletes, you know, mm. people that are training for, you know, ultra races or, or even, even like I say, people who are very active, they, they might do CrossFit three times a week mm. or, you know, so it's very, very different. They're not, you know, they're not the same thing of saying, okay, I want to, um, reduce my sugar intake and, and trying to get my 10,000 steps. It's actually yeah. people that are saying I want to, I, they're already healthy and they want to get healthier or they want to optimize. And so one thing, I guess, looping back to this metabolic health, something mm. I have heard a lot about is metabolic flexibility. Now, yes. I don't know whether this is like, again, I don't know whether this is truth, whether this is myth, but what I've learned about this is essentially that we need to our body needs to be able to adapt to different stresses and different, um, I guess, food sources and fuel sources. Mm -hmm. So for example, having low carb foods for a few days versus having, or, or should probably should reverse that. 
having loads and loads of carbs before you're going to do an endurance event and other times having high fats, high proteins, and basically mm. saying that your body can flip between, I don't know if this is the right vernacular, but yeah. which, what it wants to use as fuel. Like, are we using sugar? Are we using fats? Are we using carbs? So is metabolic flexibility firstly true? Is it possible? Is it something that we should be aiming for? What is metabolic flexibility? So metabolic flexibility is, as you rightly say, the ability for the body to either use glucose or ketone bodies depending on the metabolic environment within a given moment how effectively we do that can have a huge impact upon things like uh, blood lipid levels upon our ability to manage our weight effectively so it's quite a, a, an important thing to keep that response healthy it's hardwired into our dna so if you think about it when we were hunter gatherers for the biggest chunk of human evolution when we were actually living like wild mammals rather than the ridiculous kind of way of living that we've built for ourselves now when we were living like that we would have times of feast and famine we would have times when food was really really scarce we have a incredible ability to be able to store different types of fuel so we can store fat and we can store glucose we store glucose in the form of glycogen which we store in the liver and within the skeletal muscle and then also as we all know very well we can store if there's an excess of glucose you can turn that glucose into uh, triglycerides which are then stored in the adipose tissue when we had those times of famine, prolonged period, not, not true famine necessarily, but prolonged periods of time without eating because we had to go and find our own food, what happens is for the first 25, 30 minutes or so, you'll start to run on the, the stored glucose. So you'll be using your glycogen. Then after a while, blood glucose drops and drops and drops and drops and there's nothing else available. So the body has to start releasing the stored triglycerides from the adipose tissue, from the fat cells. It actually starts to release those triglycerides <clears throat> and we actually burn those and we turn those into things called ketone bodies that we can use in place of glucose. Now, that only happens in two ways. There's two ways of making that happen in your body. Intermittent fasting will do that. So I'm quite a fan of intermittent fasting. Yeah. And also um, a ketogenic diet. The thing with a ketogenic diet, <clears throat> it's incredibly effective for multiple elements of metabolic health, but it's really, really easy to cock it up. And if you get it wrong, it can be one of the most unhealthy things you could possibly do to yourself. Because it it is so precise. You're either in ketosis or you're not if mm. there's if even if there's the slightest deviation in terms of like i mean there might be a little bit of hidden sugar in a dressing that you're using or something like that that's enough to knock you out of ketosis and then the, the sheer amount of fat there can start to cause problems so the easiest way to kind of kick start the production of those ketones is the is the intermittent fasting if you couple that with um, a low carbohydrate diet then you'll you'll be moving in the right direction and then after I, what i do is i do about three months on three months off Oh, so that, that long? Okay. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of doing the, the keto thing at the minute. And I feel amazing on it, but it's to get that metabolic flexibility. But when I do bring the carbohydrates back in, I always combine them with the proteins as well, just to make sure that I don't get the blood sugar peaks and troughs. When we have that metabolic flexibility, it means that we can, that we can use either fuel source effectively. And that does have a huge knock-on effect on our 
long-term metabolic health because one of the, one of the, one of my absolute bugbears right but the thing that drives me crazy is this whole idea of like oh calories in calories out la, la, la. it's just such nonsense it's so misguided the whole thing of like you know eat less move more are you mad um <laughs> you know this this whole thing of like Oh, you're you're only you're only gaining weight because you're eating more calories than you're burning. It's like, well, we're not a combustion engine. We are a biological system that absorbs, that metabolizes, that excretes, that is re- self-regulating using hormones, like upregulating and downregulating hormones. It's a completely different kettle of fish. Your body will respond to the type of fuel that's present. Okay, so <clears throat> you could still be within this quote unquote calorie deficit but if you're eating loads and loads of refined carbohydrates and you're flooding your blood sugar you're still going to store fat this is so fascinating i think a couple of things that stood out to me one is about scarcity you know as you described quite briefly we used to have these periods of scarcity i guess i don't know how many hundreds of years ago Mm -hmm. but our lifestyle now for the majority of people we're very fortunate we do not have to go through scarcity therefore i.e going without fasting so i think where intermittent fasting has become again it's become maybe a trend or popular and again it's quite divisive actually i've also heard people saying you know women shouldn't do intermittent fasting and it's bad for our hormones and for endurance runners etc versus this kind of yeah biological even if you go back to you know biblical texts even back to Mm. bible times you know all these different religions that have periods of fasting yes it's for uh spiritual and it's for different reasons other than just the body but there's always been a practice of deprivation and what comes with that i think is good for both the mind and the body so it's really interesting that fact that you said basically because we don't have it anymore, we have to create it for ourselves. And I think sometimes yeah. people don't like that because it's, you know, we don't like to do difficult things. And let's be honest, <laughs> we're busy people. And, you know, when you get hungry in the afternoon or, or in the morning, for example, you know, skipping breakfast or, you know, it's not always the, the thing you want to do. But I like to always think about, you know, longevity, future self yeah. and kind of thinking, yeah, actually, if biologically this is going to be beneficial for me to, to do something like this, maybe I didn't realize actually as well when you said three months, I thought it was more like, oh, you do it for a week or you do it for four days or, or whatever. So you can do you can do whatever you want, whatever works for you. It's just I'm just a, a self-flagellation, maybe, but, like, you know, I just like <laughs> to do it, do it like that. You know what? There's something in I just picked up on something you said there about doing things that are difficult. Now, I, I really love people like David Goggins and Tom Bilyeu and one of the things that they always say is like do something that sucks every day oh you're speaking my language Dale people on this show know me for you can do hard things doing hard things is beneficial to all of us and it's necessary I'm totally with you I do think that we need to to kind of practice that mental toughness a little bit and and put ourselves through some of these things so that we can cope with the madness that's going on out there Before we, because we could definitely go down the rabbit hole of keto and all of that, but I'm not going to go there. I think what I would like to do, as I mentioned at the start, I was going to talk about protein, Mm. sugar, and gut health. Hopefully we'll get through them all. Now, sugar, wow, this is a big one. (laughs) This is a big one, especially for me. You know, Jamaican heritage, people like to joke, oh, we've got a sweet tooth, but, you know, sugar is is a vice for me. Sugar cane. Oh, yes. And we've all, prob- we've all probably heard that sugar is bad for our teeth. It's bad for energy management. We've been told it's bad for our skin. It's bad for our waistline. I've even heard sugar being referred to as poison for the body, which is pretty terrifying for someone who loves sugar, but also maybe true. And uh, it's also described, as we know, as being highly addictive. So when it comes to sugar, Dale, 
just tell me the truth. Is it really all bad news? There's a great quote that I think uh, sums this up perfectly. The difference be between poison and medicine is the dose. Okay? okay, and it's literally it's, it all depends on how much you're eating. A little, a little bit of sugar now and again ain't gonna kill you. It's not gonna do anything negative. The thing is, it's the the sheer amount that is sneaking into our day to day diet. And this isn't just the obvious stuff like a chocolate bar or fizzy drink or stuff like that. We're talking in like in in our sauces and dressings and even the simple carbohydrates, white bread, white rice, white pasta, that kind of stuff. That's basically just sugar because there's no fiber there. There's a a huge glucose load within those kind of foods it takes very little digestive effort to liberate that glucose and it's no different from eating a great big chocolate bar so when when we're consuming the levels that we are that's when it starts to become problematic that's when you i mean the amount of damage that it can do yes of course it can drive weight gain because one of the things that i was talking about earlier if there is too much sugar in your bloodstream the first thing that happens when, when when you consume some sugar your blood sugar rises when blood sugar rises the body responds to that by releasing the hormone insulin insulin binds to an insulin receptor on our cells it opens a little doorway in the cell called the glucose transporter that glucose starts to go in and the cell uses that glucose as energy all good cells can only use so much in one sitting okay so once they've got enough once they've taken in as much as they can they shut the doors and if blood sugar is still really really high which it will be from the from the those kinds of foods then it's a state that's potentially life-threatening so it needs to be dealt with the next thing that will happen is that we'll actually start to store some within the skeletal muscle and the liver in the form of glycogen but then if there's still an excess of, of sugar at this point it again it has to be dealt with it has to be gotten out of the way so it gets sent to the liver and converted into something called triglycerides triglycerides these are a fatty su substance that gets stored in the adipose tissue so yes you start to put on weight but also those triglycerides have to be sent to the fat tissue via the cardiovascular system so your blood fats start to go up which means your ldl cholesterol the damaging cholesterol starts to go up your blood triglycerides go up these can oxidize which causes damage to the cardiovascular system so already you're increasing your risk of cardiovascular disease you're putting on weight but if you're constantly flooding your body with sugar day in day out and you're constantly pushing insulin up all the time the receptors that detect insulin will eventually start to become a little bit deaf to the insulin signal it'll be like the the boy that cried wolf they'll be like hang on i think insulin's maybe lost its mind a little bit so i'm just <laughs> going to ignore it there's definitely something going on so so we move into a state that's called insulin resistance at that at that stage we become less effective at dealing with the excess sugar that can start to become very very toxic and then damage the pancreas and we have type 2 diabetes so already you you, you look at the disease patterns that are within the western world like the uk the us most most of western europe you'll see those disease patterns and it's all to do with that excess sugar that's why there's so much type 2 diabetes there's so much obesity there's so much cardiovascular disease because that flood of sugar is causing so many detrimental problems Yes, it really is. And I think a couple of things 
to note there about, you know, when you said white bread or pasta and it's saying, you know, mm. obviously it's not necessarily the same as maybe we don't view it in the same way as a bag of sugary pick and mix. But actually, I, I think you yeah, exactly. So this is the thing. If we it's that misinformation, isn't it? Of people thinking, mm. oh, I'm having pasta or I'm having toast or but like having white refined carbohydrates yes. is obviously very, very high in sugar. Mm-hmm. And so I guess what are the differences between because it's not all sugar is not created equal. Right. So what is the difference between fructose, for example, if you're having berries or citrus fruits or maybe even dates compared to mm. when you're having refined sugar, for example, in biscuits and cakes? Because I think that's also as a parent. I know, you know, my son's 10 now, but a lot of my friends are now having babies weaning, you know, different mm. ages and stages. And often they'll say, think, oh, I'm not going to let them have those. I don't know, those biscuits or crackers. They're full of sugar, but they'll have loads and loads of yeah berries and raisins. And, and, and is, is that the same or is it better? What's what's the difference there? When you actually like take the individual sugar itself, sugar is sugar is sugar. I mean, they've got slightly different structures. The thing that makes the difference is how the sugar is packaged. Okay, so the reason that things like the white bread and the the white pastas are as bad as they are is because there's very little fiber in there. So that means the glucose that's present gets released very, very quickly. When you look at fruits and vegetables, they contain a lot of fiber. So yeah, there's there's quite a, a large amount of sugar in there. But because of the fiber, it takes a while to actually liberate that sugar. So it's going to have more of a drip feeding effect on your blood sugar. And that's the issue. It's not the sugar itself. It's how how much there is, how rapidly it gets into your bloodstream, and then the knock-on effect that has on different hormones and, and metabolic markers. <clears throat> but you get, if people are into juicing, I mean, I find this if I drink a fruit juice. So if it like literally straight through the juicer. So if I had like, you know apple and orange or something like that if i drank that i'd get really lightheaded and feel like i'm really spinning out if i ate the apple and ate the orange i wouldn't because Mm. the fiber slows down the release of the sugar and that's the difference i mean you know people say like natural sugar and unnatural sugar i mean there's not really any any difference the the difference is the food that it's actually within and Mm. it's all to do with the fiber Right. Okay, great. Because also, of course, you know, before anybody comes at me saying, you know, oh, you co- of course, you're going to give fruit to kids, it's good for them. Yes, I'm not mm. going to, you know, n- negate that. Of course, having a variety of foods, fruits, vegetables, different things in your diet, of course. And also, yeah, the, the vitamins, minerals, all the things we get from having blueberries and oranges, of course, is brilliant. I think the the reason I bring it up is just because I think especially for you, for young children, like everything they're eating sometimes can be sugar, you know, even if you, so I think it's just being, it's just being mindful and having that awareness that, okay, yeah. if they're having a bowl of fruit with breakfast, if they're having, I don't know, jam on toast, if they're having something sweet, then throughout the day, they're probably having a lot of sugar, the regardless sugar load, of yeah. whether, yeah, regardless of whether it's just from biscuits <laughs> or whether it's from fruit, it's the overall amount that I think is, is probably very Bingo. high. Exactly, yeah. exactly that. And you know what, there are, there are ways to negate this. I think this is just a, an important little caveat to add. Uh, and it comes down to protein again. We were talking about protein earlier. If, say, for, you know, I'm fully aware that there's a huge amount of financial pressure on people at the moment. Mm-hmm. And it's not always easy. You can have the best will in the world, but it's not always easy to get healthier choices in certain situations. If the only thing that you've got access to is white bread, then if you've got a good amount of protein with it, the presence of the protein will slow down the release of the glucose so it's less of an issue if you've got the white refined pasta 
then add some protein with it, some chicken, some tuna, some cheese, anything like that that will slow down the release of the glucose. So you can buffer it. You can take steps to improve it. The ideal scenario, of course, is go for the multigrain, go for as much fiber and as much of the, the good stuff as you can. But I don't want to kind of sound like I'm in an ivory tower. I understand that there there are issues and there's, and there's stuff going on, but you can take steps to actually make it as good as you possibly can. Yeah, absolutely. Because you're right, you know, cost of living is going up. It's very difficult for, you know, different people's circumstances are completely different when it comes to what they can afford, access, education. And also as well, I'll be honest, again, I don't want to keep going on about parents, but a lot of my friends, it's with all the will in the world, it, they've got fussy eaters. So that's another thing, which again, ah. we could do a whole show on that. But when you're saying, you know, for some friends of mine, they're like, look, at the moment, hopefully it's just a phase. But one friend in particular, her son, I mean, he probably <laughs> eats four or five things. He's only a little, he's only three, but she's just constantly like, oh my goodness, you know, he's going to mm. be, she thinks he's going to be, you know, really malnourished and this and that and I'm kind of assuring her look it won't last forever but there's also these different challenges of trying to yeah. get your kids to try different foods and eat different things when often they're like no don't like that don't want to eat that this this was a real recurrent theme on the you know, the tv show that I'm on eat shop save we were working with families and nearly every episode we would have a fussy eater right. what I always say I mean there's two there's two ways that you can really improve the situation one actually getting them involved in cooking and when they've got an emotional investment in in the food that can sometimes make make them a little more adventurous or if all else fails ethical hoodwinking which is basically hiding as much as you can so I, I, I always uh, show people my hidden veg sauce. Yeah. So if, if the kids will eat pasta and tomato sauce, then you're onto a winner. So you just get uh, red onion, garlic, peppers, courgettes, spinach, as much veg as you could possibly put together, saute it till it's nice and soft, put a couple of tins of tomatoes in there and then puree it all up. Just get the stick blender in there and blend it. Looks, smells, tastes, feels like a regular tomato sauce. You stir that through the pasta, they won't know. <laughs> oh my God. absolutely you know what again i can attest to this because i used to do exactly that i used to make two different pasta sauces one was red and it, as you described you know carrots onion tomato and the other was green and we just call it the hulk pasta mm. it was like a pesto pasta but essentially i made it and i would put loads of spinach loads of peas broccoli garlic you know blend it up it looked the same yeah. as normal pesto out of the jar and that was actually my trick for years of getting my son to <laughs> to eat different vegetables love it <laughs> yeah okay so last thing on sugar because we both actually were worked with Grays recently. So we yes. worked with a brand called Grays on their no added sugar campaign. And that was pretty eye-opening. You know, it highlighted added sugar. And I think, and, you know, in quotation, and I think, again, this is often a problem that people just are not aware of. They think they're making a healthy choice, whether that's a snack food or a cereal brand mm -hmm. or something they're eating, which they think, okay, this is a healthy choice. Uh, you know, again, in quotes. But the problem with added sugar is that we might not recognize that it's there and you know i'm all for having information to make the right choice at the end of the day if i want to eat an ice cream i'm going to eat an ice cream i don't expect yeah, right. it to be a banana i'm thinking this is you know delicious i want to have an ice cream i know it's got sugar in it but i don't care i want to eat it enough right. but if i'm eating a banana i want it to be a banana do you know what i mean so what do you think we need to be aware of when it comes to spotting added sugar understanding how to read labels more effectively um an ingredients list really looking at the ingredients list because sometimes these things are given very very complex names and you could see things in there that you wouldn't necessarily automatically think are sugars so 
understanding that. But then when, when you look at the nutrition label and you look at the carbohydrate content, you'll see carbohydrate, then you'll see of which sugars. Mm. That will tell you a lot. If that's very, very high, if like, if it's say there's 25 grams of carbohydrate, if it says of which sugars, 20 grams, then that's a massive percentage of added sugar. Okay. okay. So though, it's those kinds of things. The, the, the problem is there's not actually any any rules for food manufacturers to actually declare how much added sugar is in the food which you, you, I, I, I can see that changing. I can see that with some of the, some of the new uh, legislation that's starting to come in in terms of like some of the food promotions and where things are in stores and all of that that's, that, that's coming over the next couple of years. I can see that changing. But because there's not that uh, rule for food manufacturers to actually put it on, on the packaging, mm. it's very difficult for the consumer to make that healthy choice like like you rightly said but if you look at the label and that's the real key look at the label look at the carbohydrate content of which sugars if that's if that's very very high in comparison to the total carbohydrate number then you know that there's a lot of added sugar in there yeah okay and as i said you know we both worked with grays on this they did a huge amounts of research i was so impressed when i kind of dived into all of the information in there it was super useful so definitely yeah. recommend that people find out more about that campaign no added sugar want to teach your kids financial literacy but not sure where to start Greenlight can help with Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids spending and saving while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com ACAST. So next up, gut health. As I mentioned, I do feel like there's so much we could do an hour on gut health, but I'm going to make some assumptions <laughs> about our listeners today. I'm going to make some assumptions that they have probably heard about the gut microbiome. They've probably heard me talk to uh, other guests on the show about having a diverse diet with lots of different plants and you know maybe opting for 30 fruits and vegetables a week. But the thing I want to talk to you about, Dale, when it comes to gut health is... Actually, this is from a video that I saw on your Instagram when mm-hmm. you were talking about the difference between hormones in the gut and hormones in the brain, right? right? And so, for example, serotonin, I know is a big one. People talk yeah. about if you have anxiety and depression, then you need to boost your serotonin levels. And I actually Googled which foods boost serotonin. And there's so many things that come up straight away. It says if you want to, uh, the seven foods that can boost serotonin and six ways to boost serotonin without medicine. And it, and it recommends you eat eggs, cheese, turkey, nuts, salmon, etc. And then also it says things like, you know, meditation and getting outside. But the big thing to note here, and actually I'm going to stop talking and put this over to you, is about your serotonin in the gut and serotonin in the brain and whether yeah. that you know how what we eat really you know what's the chemical the science between what we eat and what's happening in the brain so over to you dale yeah absolutely well because you always hear people say oh 70 percent of the body's serotonin is made in the gut so if you look if if you've got a healthy gut you're not going to get depressed it's like the most ridiculous logic i've ever ever heard it's the assumption that if it's present in one place it's going to have 
an effect somewhere else. Serotonin is a neurotransmitter that has many functions. Its function is determined by where it is found. So in the gut, serotonin regulates something called peristalsis. This is the rhythmical contraction that moves gut contents along, that pushes things on their journey, right? Serotonin is also active in the skeleton. It's actually involved in bone mineral maintenance. You don't hear people say, oh, look after your skeleton, you won't get depressed. It's also involved in platelet function within the blood. Within the brain, yes, absolutely. It's involved in elevating mood. And also it's the precursor to melatonin, which is involved in sleeping. So its function is determined by where it's found. So yeah, you can increase gut serotonin until the cows come home. That's going to have zero impact on your brain levels of serotonin. If you want to increase your brain levels of serotonin, then a good food source of tryptophan. So tryptophan is an amino acid that is the precursor to serotonin, combined with a relatively fast release sugar. Now this is like, because we were talking about blood sugar spikes earlier, mm. when you're consuming a tryptophan rich food, you want to have a you want to have an insulin spike because the insulin spike actually fires the tryptophan across the blood brain barrier. So that actually helps to um, improve serotonin production in the brain. If you combine that as well with omega-3 fatty acids, they actually improve serotonin, well, neurotransmitter receptor function. So you're increasing the level of the neurotransmitter and you're making the uh, device that actually listens to its signals work more effectively as well. So you what, can... What's an example of that? What's an example of a food that has tryptophan, high in tryptophan? That's, that, that's turkey, banana, um, mm. peanut butter tuna all very very good sources so one of my favorite things would be something like a, a tuna open sandwich as, as as a snack maybe an hour and a half before bed so if you just like you know just a small one so like a bit of tuna mayo some spinach half a slice of bread knock that back you've got enough of an insulin spike to actually drive that that uh tryptophan across the blood brain barrier mm. okay i'll be honest i was a little bit gutted when i <laughs> found this out this whole thing around you like you just said you know serotonin foods and because I'm someone who yeah I think when it comes to low mood you know I mentioned earlier about the cycle and like yeah. tracking your cycle and I'm like okay cool what are the things that I can do I can you know override this if I'm having hormonal imbalances you know the week before my period for example mm. by you know eating these foods and then when I heard you say that I was like oh no it's not true so you know it's kind of like because also as well of course for people who suffer from mental illness anxiety depression mm. etc I do think sometimes yeah, it's just put to them, well, do these things, you can kind of, you know, figure it out and improve it for yourself. Mm. And that's when I think it's unhelpful, because, you know, of course, some of these conditions, they're not going to change just by that, you, of course, the things you can do to maybe alleviate whatever, but it's not yeah. going to change just by, uh, you know, eating a banana. I mean, diet can have a huge impact on mood. I mean, there's a lot to it. Things like blood sugar balance, things like um, your fatty acid intakes. I mean, I, I wrote a book on um, nutrition, anxiety and depression. So the, the link is very, very strong. But one of the things that you rightly pointed out and something that I really want to emphasize as well is I would view it as part of the therapeutic spectrum. If you've got some serious stuff going on, don't think that just a dietary change is going to get you out of the woods. Get all of the help you need from all directions. Absolutely get all of the help that you need from all directions. But 
diet and lifestyle, that represents the one aspect of your healthcare that you can actively engage in. It is that one thing that you can do for yourself. And I guarantee you improve your diet, you will notice a difference in the way that you feel. You absolutely will notice a difference in terms of, of mood. I mean, a, a good friend of mine, Dr. Alex Richardson, she was uh, based at Oxford University. She did a lot of uh, research around omega-3 fatty acids and schizophrenia. So nutrition can actually be a tool in some very, very serious issues as well when it's applied in the right way under the right kind of clinical supervision. So it is a powerful tool, but I always emphasize it's part of the therapeutic spectrum. It's not the answer to everything yeah absolutely and like you mentioned before with diets like keto diet because you know that has as i'm sure you know benefits for yeah. people with epilepsy but these are very very difficult things to stick to as well the reality yes. is for somebody who has a uh, you know maybe a young adolescent with epilepsy the idea of putting them on a strict ketogenic diet really is going to limit their life as well in terms of their not their life but their lifestyle you know being able to mm. have dinner with friends being able to go to restaurants being able to have i don't know a snack in the afternoon is very 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 difficult to really stick to as well so yeah, yeah i agree i think it's a part of it but it's not always a simple a simple answer no. Wow, so much in here, so much, Dale. <laughs> I could talk to you all day about this, but I'm going to move on to the final segment of the show, which is, of course, okay. the Power Hour. So yes. Power Hour is all about the first hour of your day. I don't really care mm. anymore what time it is. I used to really kind of encourage people to make it super early because there's less distractions going on in the world. You know, you can kind of have, find the magic of the morning when there's peace and quiet and calm, hopefully. But whatever hour you decide to get up, is there firstly your own morning routine? Is there anything you mm. include in the mornings, anything that you avoid in the mornings? And this can be diet or anything else in your lifestyle. I, I'm a 5am person, so I'm always yes. always up at five. I love that time of day. One of the things I always used to do, and certainly I, I found myself doing it a lot during the pandemic, is I would always, the first thing I would do is put, is put like the morning news on. Now I completely avoid it because they are just glum, Wind trumpets, they're misery klaxons. They are the most, you know, I just cannot listen to this anymore. So now I put some comedy on. Right. I'll put some comedy on in the background. I don't even like necessarily pay attention to it. Something really, really silly. I'll make a coffee. I always have like a nice, strong coffee. And then just just in, just enjoy the coffee. Don't eat. Just just sit there and figure out where my day's going. Then on a Sunday, the thing that I love to do on a Sunday, I still get up really early on a Sunday. That time on a Sunday is incredible because nobody's up. And I'm really lucky where I live. Uh, my, my back garden is joined on to like a huge park. And there's a forest that lines all of the outside of this park. So that forest sort of backs onto my back garden. I'll sit out there between five and six with a coffee, just listening to nature. And it is bliss. Mm, no distraction. Yes. And it's, it's just a great way to reset. Then after I've done that for a little while, the next thing that I do is block out my day. I mean, I am relentless with this. I mean, anyone that's tried to get a reply to an email from me knows this. I check my email twice a day. I check it at 9am and I check it at 3pm. If you email me after three, you're getting dealt with at nine o'clock the next day. And it's like, because otherwise you end, you end up building your day around other people's agendas and other people's needs. So the, the, the next thing that I do in this, in this section of the morning is like, right, I'll block out my day. I'll be like, okay, from from 10 till 1 i'm doing content from 
two till three i've got to work on this thing like four till five i've got to get that finished i'll block out the day so i actually start the day intentionally mm. and i use that time for that Wow. I mean, you, literally you're reading the power hour script, if I could have given you one, <laughs> because no, honestly, that's what I, you know, it's being intentional. That word is so yeah. important. You know, we can just, lives can be busy. We can wake mm. up, go straight into whatever the world demands from us without even having a moment to take a breath or, or have lost. a yeah, or to have a thought of our own. So yeah, I'm a big advocate for being intentional in the morning and taking some time to do whatever you want to do, drinking the coffee, walking the dog, you know, listening to a podcast, whatever it is, mm. but doing something for the first hour, because it really is such a game changer. It can really change how the rest of your day, your week, your month, how how you live your entire life. And I know that probably sounds like a extreme, but to say, oh, one hour a day can change your life, but it certainly has for me, you know, been doing yeah. power hour for six years and i can't tell you on on a day where for whatever reason if life happens and, and, and things change and i just have to wake up and go straight into something it throws my entire day not right. having my first power hour it's it really is that that impactful yeah oh, it, it really really is yes it's just an hour but if you're if if you're using it to to really kind of plan how your your day your week your month or whatever is going then the knock-on effect that that has on multiple elements of your life is really really quite profound and it just goes to show that it only takes a small amount of time an hour in your day to really create massive change when you do things intentionally when you actually know which direction you're moving in when you've got that kind of clarity and structure i mean i'm i I'm a Virgoan, so I mean, I'm obsessed with like structure and order and everything being kind of uh, spot on. But it makes such a difference. Yeah. It makes such a huge difference. And for anyone listening who, uh, I guess we've talked a lot about nutrition today. You've given yeah. us so much to think about. I'm so grateful for you giving us your time today. If the listeners could take one thing away from this, from a nutrition perspective, that's going to have the biggest impact on their health and actionable change that they could make, what would that one thing be? change one thing and I don't mean that as like a cop-out answer at all because it's far from it what I will say to people is is when they're trying to make changes in their diet so many people try and change everything overnight they, they they're going to go from like living on on beer and pizza to becoming like a, a raw food yogi overnight it's like mate it's not going to happen you need to get real think of one thing that you know that you could do so it could be like make one commitment to yourself like okay i'm gonna i'm gonna stop snacking on chocolate and instead i'm gonna snack on fresh fruit okay i'm gonna make sure that with one of my meals i have a good dense side salad okay i'm gonna make sure one of my meals is a home-cooked meal whatever pick one thing that you know is realistic you know that you can actually achieve make a commitment to it and then start doing it get your get your butt in gear start doing it start acting on it just repeat it over and over again don't worry about everything else just that one thing that one that one change repeat it over and over again once that becomes the norm and once you're kind of like okay I'll, this is comfortably in my routine keep doing it but then pick another thing to change and then another and then another whilst that might seem like baby steps when you look back over like six or 12 months that can create some really really profound lifestyle change but also it's it's done in a very very comfortable way mm. yeah 
I love that. And as you say, small things day after day after day, it adds up to have a huge, huge impact. I can't believe that it's June, you know, at the start of this year, so many of us, obviously we have goals, we have aspirations, we have things mm-hmm. we want to do. And I think coming out of the pandemic, especially, you know, I run goal setting workshops. So I'm always I'm lucky I get to hear what people want to mm-hmm. achieve, what they're working on. And then suddenly I look at the calendar and I'm like, it's June. That means we're halfway through this year. Mm-hmm. So if you're listening to this and you're thinking, oh gosh, that was me. Yeah, I had some things at the start of this year that I wanted to do one thing baby steps it's okay because if you keep doing it every day every week Mm -hmm. by the end of this you've still got six more months what could you achieve in the next six months by doing something intentionally just one thing consistent action and also you know these these consistent improvements I don't know whether you're whether you practice kaizen I mean I, I I lived in Japan for for quite a while and there's there's one thing in Japanese culture called kaizen which is continual improvements and adjustments you've just got to have some forward momentum you you just have that forward momentum and then you constantly adjust and tweak and and improve i like i like to use you know know, people always say uh, ready aim fire I was. I, I like to say, ready, fire, aim. So fire, get moving, get going, start doing something, and then figure it out as you go. Yes, I love yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, because the forward momentum is the difference. Because far too many people get stuck in analysis paralysis. They think they're overthinking things. They're, you know, they're letting the the emotion and the fear and all of these different mental chatter get in the way but just taking that step that forward momentum that's going to actually really really move you who cares if you cock it up just start just adjust just keep going and learn learn forward yes take this energy do not waste it this is what i love about this show you know you never know who's listening when they're listening and i hope that it will really help people to take to, to make a change this week, to feel this energy and this impact and don't waste it. Awesome. Thank you so much, Dale, for joining us. Is there anything else? Because I know the listeners are probably going to want to know, okay, where can they find you? Where can they find mm. your book? So where can they reach out to you? Uh, so yeah, my, my main website is just dalepinnock.com. So P-I-N-N-O-C-K.com. Uh, also very active on social. I'm mostly, mostly Instagram and Facebook. So Instagram, it's just The Medicinal Chef. And Facebook, The Medicinal Chef. So you can find me on both of those. Brilliant. Thanks again. And thanks everyone for tuning in as always. And Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. For listening to the Power Hour, I'll be back next week. See you. 